It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And good afternoon. I am coming to you live today on Tuesday, September 20th, usually coming to you from the nation's capital in the United States, Washington, D.C., but today I'm coming to you live from Madrid, Spain. I've been here speaking at a very important conference here in Spain, and as always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. For those of you who might be new to the show, uh, we this is a live call-in show, and you can call in to 347-324-3080 to ask questions of our page two expert. Here on page one, we follow the news of the day. You can follow along with the links that we've provided to you at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. You can also ask questions over in the chat room, and I see some folks over in the chat room. You can also email me today at tedhart.com at tedhart.com. First up here on page one, news comes to us from Adweek. Adweek is announcing that WordPress hits 50 million blogs. Uh, you can also, over in the radio links today, uh, find my blog. Uh, our blog is Build Success Online and Offline, and what we post there are all of my Twitter feeds. So all of the tweets that I send out are cataloged over there on our uh, WordPress blog at tedhart.wordpress.com. Next up here on the radio links that you'll find at tedhart.com, 
click on radio links comes to us from social media marketing and over at social media marketing they're providing us information on how you can do social media marketing on a shoestring Uh, no money no matter and what they're doing is providing you with uh, tools and techniques key social media channels and sites that you can use to promote your brand reaping the benefits of conversations that you can start using Facebook LinkedIn Twitter and others so check that out from the folks over at social media marketing magazine at tedhart.com click on radio links now we've got a lot on page one today but one of the things that I wanted to take advantage of is a very dear friend of mine here in Spain, Daryl Upsall, has one of the most important consultancies in Europe. He's been a leader online and offline in fundraising. He's now here live in Madrid joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Daryl, thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. It's a pleasure, Ted, and thank you for inviting me. I wanted to start off, uh, your firm, uh, you in, in particular, been a leader in technology and online fundraising, use of the internet by charitable organizations uh, since the beginning of your career. But for a lot of folks, uh, that may really surprise them that you were raising money online in 1993. Uh, Tell us how you were able to do that. Those were heady days, Ted. That's when I was at Greenpeace International. And in 93, Greenpeace International was raising $50,000 each month online just off this donate button. Now, that was a time when most of us in the rest of the world didn't have emails, didn't have internet, didn't even know what a, a search engine was. And in fact, uh, Wired Magazine ran a special 25-page feature called Greenpeace Mind-Bombing the Internet. They were heady days. Now, how were you processing gifts at that point with so little technology and so little knowledge at the time? In a sense, that's the beauty of being the prime mover and the disadvantage. We were pretty much manually processing credit cards from Visa and MasterCard, which was often fun because we got donations of sometimes 100 The problem is it wasn't always clear whether it was a yen or a dollar, and that did make a difference when you debited people's bank accounts. And these were manual processes um, and just did what everybody else would have done those days is we just sent people direct mail appeals thereafter. Now, now Daryl, those were the days before your Daryl Upsall consulting firm. uh, Bring us forward to the starting of your firm and what that has meant uh, for uh, charities uh, throughout Europe. Okay. Well, I set up the company Daryl Upsall Consulting International, which – uh, for shorthand, we call Doofy nowadays, in the year 2000, having left Greenpeace, with the intention of being a small consultancy, probably one or two people working with myself. Something went wrong with the business plan along the line, because we are now by far the largest agency in, in Spain, and that and our 14 associated companies that are inside the brand employ some 900 people in Spain and people in nine other countries around the world. But I guess since we started in some of our activities in the 2003, we've raised some 250 million euros for our clients here in Spain and much more besides in the various other countries we work across. Now, what is the bulk of of your business today? What percentage would you say is online? 
Um, funny enough, increasingly less. Uh, it's, it's again one of those strange things where, I guess in 93, myself and Mike Johnston made a presentation in London on internet fundraising in a big TV studio with 200 of the thought leaders and leaders of the non-profit sector and not one person had an email address. Since then, people like yourself and other, other gurus have come in and focused almost exclusively on new media, exclusively entirely. And I've moved across into more perhaps traditional fundraising like telephone and face-to-face, -face, which is recruiting donors who pay through their bank every month, door-to-door, -door, on the street, in shopping malls, which in itself has now become a global phenomenon. So what is your advice for uh, for charities as you're working with new charities in terms of a balance of online and offline, uh, or are you now uh, advising more traditional? No, far from it. In fact, um, over the years, what's certainly become evident to me is online and offline need each other. Uh, and when I say offline, I'm generally not talking about direct mail anymore, which direct mail, sending direct mail appeals in Europe and the Far East, Latin America is more or less something for the history books. There are fundraisers who've never seen a direct mail pack, uh, which may as come as a surprise to you know, some of your U.S. listeners. No, we encourage people to, to integrate with uh, social networking tools, web, email, SMS texting, but ultimately, we find many of the relationships that are financially most valuable involve a combination of one of the new media tools and more typically the telephone because you can start a conversation on the street, you can engage people through internet and email, but very often you have to go back and have a human conversation with them as well. But the two need each other. They are integral. Yeah. So, Daryl, that was a big topic of uh, the lectures that I gave here um, at the uh, Congress here in Madrid is one of integration. So that's really bearing itself out with, with your clients. It really is the marriage of traditional with, with, uh, with uh, new media. Um, I was interested to hear you say, though, that uh, direct mail – uh, continues to decline to the point where you're not really recommending it as uh, a primary strategy these days? Absolutely. In, in Spain, for example, I had some 200 people in the, the presentation I made this morning at the Congress. I asked of those 200 people, all of which were the, included the leading not-for-profits in Spain, UN agencies, social welfare organizations, not one single handbook when I ask the question, who uses direct mail as a primary or main fundraising tool? Not one hand went up. I recall being at AFP conferences in the US where 99% of the hands would have gone up in a room and that one hand that didn't go up would probably be the person who didn't know what fundraising was. Or someone that was very, it was really focused on special events. Uh, Daryl, when was the tipping point for that? When, when can you uh, say that uh, you started seeing the decline of direct mail as a primary fundraising tool for charities? I, th I think if we look across Europe, it came at different times. In Spain, it was the cash cow of the 1990s. But almost instantly, as we got into the 21st century, we saw house files dropping to 2% response rates, acquisition mailings at 
And I put that in Spain to a big cultural issue. It's where people love to talk in Spain. It's a Latin culture. It's a cafe culture. You can't get away from the noise, the hubbub of people talking. They buy very few newspapers in Spain, very few books. Reading is not a social habit. Transpose yourself to Holland, where people are highly literate. Uh, there are cold, long winter months, and I speak from bitter experience of living there. People read newspapers voraciously, they read books voraciously, and they read direct mail voraciously. And so direct mail in Holland. So direct mail in Holland is still um, a significant player, but in Spain it's not. It's not, but actually as you go into the newly emerging markets in Eastern Europe, where I've worked a lot this year in, in, in most of the Eastern Europe, former communist countries, direct mail is, is not a tool that, that works particularly well. And I think this is also a reflection of generational uh, change because people between 20 and 30 they're not great readers. People are 50, 60, um, and I speak as one of those. At the lower end, you know, we read books out of pleasure. I have a 17-year-old son who barely knows what a book is. And so social media is one of those ways that you're filling in that gap and successfully? It's becoming a, a massive engagement tool. Um, interestingly, Spain has some unusual statistics in that, in that Facebook isn't a brand leader amongst young people here. There's a, an indigenous product called Twenty, which some of you may be familiar with listening because I think it also exists in some of the other Spanish-speaking worlds. And that's a kind of closed area for under 30-year-olds. But within those four, and that's where I get the data from having a, a, a young teenage son or an energetic online teenage son, is even within 20 Young people are actively talking about social causes, philanthropy, sending each other links to cool things on YouTube which relate to the non-profit world. Um, whether that transpires with that generation into donating or purely activism, we yet to know. Carol, I'm going to ask you if uh, you don't mind staying with us for just a little um, I'm going to uh, uh, finish up some of the news on Page One News. I see that uh, our Page Two experts having a little bit of trouble joining us, and I want to continue our dialogue. If that's uh, if that's okay with you, can you stay with us a bit longer? More than happy. Oh, that would be great. Okay, well, back here on uh, Page One News over on the news links at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. You will find from Biz Report News and Insight for online marketers, Ma Mailer Mailer, consumers wary of email subject line personal personalization. Uh, so some folks um, have uh, been testing whether or not personalization in the subject line would increase click-through rates. Well, it's just done the opposite. So um, uh, this study shows that personalization in the subject line is a no-no, uh, whereas personalization uh, in a message itself had a cl higher click-through rate of 3%, but you know what? That was the same as email that was not personalized at all. So uh, studies are showing that personalizing email uh, does not necessarily Now, subject lines perform better. Uh, those containing characters of 4 to 15 characters attracted the highest open rates of 14.1%, while those with 51 or more characters had open rates below 10%. So uh, the other thing that comes out in this uh, important article 
is it does matter uh, what time of day that you send out your emails with open rights spiking between 6 a.m. and 11 a.m. local time for wherever your audience uh, may be uh, with a slightly higher click-through rate on Sundays. Uh, actually, quite a bit uh, higher uh, open rates on Sundays, generating a 12% open rate uh, versus a 4% uh, open rate. The lowest at 2% uh, was on Thursdays. Uh, so watch your own statistics. This doesn't tell you exactly that your audience is going to uh, respond in exactly the same way. But what it does raise is the importance of knowing your audience, knowing how your audience is opening uh, and what they are responding to. So check it out. Use as a benchmark uh, over at Biz Report. You'll find that in the radio links at tedhart.com. Next up here on page one news is an important study entitled Daring to Lead, the National Study of Nonprofit Executive Leadership. Uh, you can find that at daringtolead.org or, of course, in the radio links today. That comes to us from Compass Point Nonprofit Services and the Meyer Foundation. Uh, this is part of a series of published uh, dating back to 2001. This particular um, study uh, covers the issues of leading through a recession inside the executive director's job and the board paradox. Uh, so check this out. You can download the full report in PDF format. We've provided that to you at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. As uh, we continue uh, following through here on page one news, the next um, uh, piece of useful information comes to us from the Frog Loop blog. Frog Loop blog, it comes to us from Care2 in their nonprofit marketing program. A particular article that we're sharing with you today in the radio links uh, is four tools to help any nonprofit tell stories online. Uh, one of the topics that I put forward in the plenary that I provided here at the Congress uh, here in, uh, in Madrid uh, was this notion of telling your story. Uh, so when uh, Daryl Upsall joins us again after page one news, I want to explore that topic with him uh, in terms of how storytelling really does affect online success. And you can marry our conversations today uh, uh, with uh, the uh, excellent advice uh, that comes to you from the folks over at Frog Loop uh, and Amy Sample Ward, who has written four tools to help any nonprofit tell stories online. Next up here is very important news from LinkedIn. LinkedIn is reporting over you'll find that LinkedIn is now adding a new volunteer experience and causes field Profiles. Well, this is excellent for charitable organizations to be able to draw attention to their volunteers through LinkedIn. And of course, those of you who are familiar here with the nonprofit coach, LinkedIn uh, is in the United States the number three strategy uh, for charitable organizations around the world. It's the number two strategy. Uh, just to remind you, the top strategy for success online is a well designed website with good navigation and good content from your organization. In the United States, the number two strategy is a guide star strategy, which we've spoken of extensively here. And around the world, the next important strategy is a LinkedIn strategy. Well, that has just changed. LinkedIn strategy continues to be extremely important uh, in 
polls, um, nearly 2,000 U.S. professionals found that 41% said that they were evaluating candidates they consider volunteer work um, using LinkedIn. So this continuing is a very important strategy for charities. And now they've upped the ante by adding the new volunteer experience and causes field to profiles. Next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, we're going to uh, uh, end page one news and head right back uh, for, to continue our dialogue with Daryl Upsall. Hi, uh, Daryl. Uh, this is uh, Ted Hart uh, back. Uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, uh, with you. I think we can get uh, uh, Tom into uh, into the call. I'm going to try to do that. He's uh, just sent an email saying we can get to him through a switchboard. Uh, but before we do that, I want to continue on with the dialogue and have you uh, tell the audience a little bit about uh, the Asociación uh, Española de Fundraising. I know I killed the Spanish there. Uh, but you were instrumental <laughs> in starting uh, this association here in Spain. Um, what was the Congress all about? And tell us about this organization, why it's important here in Spain. Okay, I, I can't tell you much of being a founder, but I was an early member of the board. And, and in the year 2000, I was the keynote speaker and international guest there. For massively 28 people. Uh, it was fantastic today to be here in Madrid, and the, the conference does alternate between Madrid and Barcelona each year. And uh, to have full audience, uh, many international speakers, and more and more is highly competent and experienced Spanish speakers. Something that took quite a few years to, to get along. The fundraising is. Association in Spain itself is growing. Uh, it's now become a very serious voice with the Spanish government, with the Spanish tax authorities, and has considerable influence on issues that impact upon the life of nonprofits and fundraising. So I'm delighted to have continued to be a part of it and, and to play a role, and indeed, as we should all be, a donor and sponsor of the Exactly. My understanding is that this was the uh, the eleventh year for this Congress here uh, in yep. Spain. Uh, how has the charitable market changed in those eleven years? It, it's grown enormously. Funnily enough, my presentation in the year two thousand was looking at the future of fundraising, and and I did predict uh, an enormous rise in the use of new media. And actually, just on the horizon, we were seeing seeing some early early hints of social media, but it, it wasn't being headlined as a key issue. But uh, the numbers continue to grow of uh, new donors, new committed donors raised, the expansion of tools that fundraisers can use now, and the growing professionalization. Spain's still got a long way to go. Um, it's an interesting market because non-profits were not allowed to exist during the Franco dictatorship, which dominated the country for 40 years. Then it boomed, and then it had a kind of bust period. But I would say despite crisis, which many of your listeners may have uh, heard on the radio and in the newspapers, despite the crisis, fundraising is growing in Spain, and there is a sense of optimism. 
And, and, and as you said before, uh, social media is really moving to the forefront and, and is eclipsing direct mail uh, in Spain. Is there anything else that distinguishes the Spanish market from other areas in the world that you work in? Yeah, funny enough, in my, in my uh, session, at the end of my session today, two things actually I covered. One was actually the importance of storytelling, which is critically important online, but also critically important offline. We need to tell the stories from the, the perspective of our beneficiaries, people we work with, etc. But I guess the one thing that really distinguishes Spain, certainly from a market like the US, is 95% of all gifts that are given to charities are directly from the bank. In other words, there is no check writing. I asked my audience today of 200 people who has written a check for any purpose whatsoever in the last year. No hands went up. We have digital banking, online banking, and people are donating, on average, in Spain, 13 euros, which is, what, 16 $17 a month, automatically through the bank. And that gives us huge advantage, even over mature fundraising markets like the U.S. And that kind of giving through the bank, making a commitment long-term and having it auto made automatically, is a big trend in Europe and, in fact, increasingly in Latin America and the Far East. And in this case, North America is a bit of a laggard. Yeah, it certainly uh, certainly is a, a very different uh, uh, market here. I, I wanted to just explore, and then uh, I'm going to ask my audience uh, to hang tight. We are going to uh, bring Tom Wilson here into uh, the show as our page two uh, expert. Uh, but before I let you go, um, th this issue of, of telling a story, this was one of the topics that I put forward uh, in my plenary today. We've certainly, we have a link in page one, as you heard uh, today, um, is is that something that's universal around the world, that telling the story? And I, I, I caught the end of, uh, of your session, and you were talking about bringing program people and really reaching. Is that something that fundraisers fail to do? Why, why is it that we don't seem to be very good storytellers? Okay. I, I think the one challenge and the way fundraisers fail, and, and I take myself later in that over the years, is sometimes we are so far away from the beneficiaries or the program that we lose track of it. We're very focused on the money, very focused on the recruiting donor number. We sometimes don't get down and dirty and actually see and experience charity. I was yeah. working in Sarajevo with NGOs from nine countries uh, in June this year. A whole day was spent on the art of storytelling. And I heard stories about children in all of the East European countries, I tried, I donated. It was so powerful, much more powerful than talking about program in numbers and, and technical terms. Is, is that really a tale for to take away from our discussion today is one to not be what I call a white glove fundraiser, but to, uh, in fact, um, as you said, sort of get our hands dirty? I see what you've got to do, for example, for development charities. If you haven't smelt the dirt and the dust of a poor country, how can you go out and ask money for it? I, I've been in those poor countries. I've had my entire board of 13 or 13 or 14 people die with HIV and AIDS while I was working for an organization. Experiencing AIDS for Cameron certainly made me a better person for causes like HIV AIDS in the early 1990s. And is this an experience that... 
is this an experience that you feel uh, perhaps uh, a lot of fundraisers and, and Daryl, while we're chatting, I'm, I'm uh, going to bring uh, Tom Wilson into. Uh, I think it's an experience, actually. The fundraisers don't demand enough. Yes, um, we're calling for Tom Wilson, please, if you can connect us to the call, please. Sure, one moment. Thank you. Go ahead, Daryl. I believe fundraisers themselves aren't often demanding enough of getting the program, or actually they don't feel they want to. And I think many organizations are not good at encouraging fundraisers to go to the field, whether that field is only 15 minutes from the office or it's in their building, but they build a sort of artificial the wall, wall around it and, and, and a lot of times uh, I think that uh, perhaps that's what uh, uh, draws uh, uh, fundraisers to things like direct mail and phone and things of that sort there's almost as you said that that barrier that we put up yeah I, I asked my audience today the first thing I asked about what they can do about uh, the recession the crisis in Spain and fundraising and I asked them how many of you donations and it's shocking. I ask this question all over the world where I work, and the number of fundraisers I meet today who've never asked for a donation is truly shocking. They sit behind a computer, and they call themselves fundraisers. It's yeah. our responsibility to ask personally, yeah. and then we know what it's like to be asked. Exactly. Daryl, I'm just going to check and see. Uh, Tom Wilson, are you with Tom. us? Yes, I'm here. Oh, wonderful. Uh, Tom, uh, we have uh, uh, Daryl Upsall from Madrid here on the call. I know we've had a little bit of trouble, so thank you for being patient. Uh, thank you for joining us here on uh, The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, Daryl, I want to thank you so much for uh, hanging in there and uh, giving us a, a lot more insight. But I think this uh, topic, Tom, I, I think maybe you've been able to uh, to listen. I think Daryl has provided us with a, a really nice entree into the work that you do um, in uh, – we're sort of ending with Daryl on this of how many fundraisers don't actually ask for money. Uh, and, I, and, and, and I think that is something that, that perhaps we, we don't focus that much on. And uh, we're going to be uh, talking to uh, Tom Wilson uh, here on Profit Code specifically uh, on the uh, the topic of major gift fundraising. And uh, you certainly, uh, uh, I don't think, can be a successful major gift fundraiser without asking money. But we're going to find out uh, if that's true uh, uh, when we talk with uh, Tom Wilson in just a few moments. Daryl Ups from Daryl Upsall Consulting in Madrid, Spain. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And now we have to Well, one of the things I think that is true about uh, fundraisers uh, is that uh, you have to be patient, and Tom Wilson certainly has been patient as we've been working on the technology here from Madrid. Tom Wilson is an author and fundraiser consultant, building self campaigns from inception, reinvigorating stalled initiatives, and uh, working with is around the world. In his successful uh, campaigning, uh, he is author to the AFP Wiley series book, Winning Gifts. Uh, today is the AFP Wiley radio show, and live here on The Nonprofit Coach is Tom Wilson. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Well, glad to be here, and I want to pick up on one of Daryl's themes about storytelling. Yes, please That's do. Topic and... He's right. Too many people don't tell stories, and you're right. You do have to get your hands dirty and feel the stories, but that's really moves 
make a gift donor. It's not just the theory of what you do as an organization on the programs you have, but here's a real-life story of it concretely of how you impacted somebody's life. And that's what really motivates Yeah, Tom, has, has Daryl sort of uh, raised uh, sort of an unspoken, under-the-radar issue that is perhaps a really major issue uh, in the nonprofit sector, and that is fundraisers who are not fundraisers? I'm afraid so, even at the major gift level. Even at the major uh, gift level. Now, let, let's. I want you want to jump right in uh, and, uh, and talk about your very important book, Winning Gifts: uh, Make Your Donors Feel Like Winners. Uh, but let's let's kind of wind it back a little bit and tell our audience a little bit uh, about who is Tom Wilson and a little bit about your firm. Okay, sure. I've been in the more than a quarter century. Um, started. A musician by training and sort of felt fundraising as most people do. And we decided doing Anthem and ended up doing a lot of campaigns. And I had done that with several consulting firms and now with Campbell Company. And we're a Chicago based firm. We have about uh, 40 staff, been in business 35 years. I've been with them for seven years now. And I'm on the Portland, Oregon office and do fundraising all over the West Coast. And in fact, today I'm coming from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Wow, from from uh, from Jackson Hole. So so you're there with a client. Um, talking about uh, about your book and, and uh, again this topic that uh, Daryl has uh, brought up with us here. Um, what is it that that fundraisers are afraid of uh, in not actually asking for money? Well, that's the technology. That's the premise of my whole book. You know, I'm not calling it winning gifts. Well, if we do our job right, the donors will thank us for asking for money. Right. Now, now a lot of folks, for a lot of folks, that sounds like a line that that could possibly be true. So tell us how that <laughs> is true. But listen carefully to the donors. You'll detect their value so they connect with the organization with enthusiasm. And it listen carefully to that and then bring them a proposal back feeding into their values, so their activity with the organization. They'll get very excited about the proposal, and that's where they thank you. You know, man, I'm so pleased you asked me for that quarter million dollars. And why so is that? What What is the essence of of why someone would be thankful uh, about uh, uh, about being asked? Ah, good question. Well, a lot of people, especially people of great wealth, they've been very successful in life. They've built companies. They've made great investments, and they need to go through the phase of building that corporate entity, enjoying their wealth, buying the toys, different homes, whatever they do. And at a certain point, they start looking for more meaning in life. What else is there? And so this last effort is explains to them the joy of philanthropy, giving your money away. And we've certainly seen that with Paul Allen and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, where they're going, no matter how wealthy I am, what do I do with this money for the good of the world? How do I pay society back? And so many wealthy people are looking for opportunities, but they and, don't want to and, wave their hands. And are there common themes around what they're looking for? I mean, my, one of my contentions is that uh, there are rules to fundraising because someone who gives away a lot of money knows what a good fundraiser looks like. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of, to me, a job of good fundraiser is we're the orchestrator. We're the matchmaker. We're trying to understand the organization components and how it impacts society and go to the donor, translate that to the donor. If there's a match, we're off for a great gift. 
And occasionally the donor will say, well, I hear what you're saying. There's no match for me. Okay, we're done. And, and, and for a lot of fundraisers, I think that, that is the crux of being a development officer versus just being someone who asks for money, um, is listening to those clues. Because I think a lot of fundraisers, they have budgets, they have campaigns, they have goals. And so when they meet with someone, they're thinking of the gift fitting into their campaign as opposed to what does the donor want to accomplish. Exactly, and that's why I enjoy working with complex organizations like the one here in Wyoming or hospitals or universities where there's a, a multiplicity of projects and the donor can go shopping. It's, it's much harder when I've got to build one building, we've got to raise $5 million for this radio station, and that's it. That's but isn't, isn't that, isn't that uh, the sign of a true fundraiser is, is to uh, be a donor's advocate um, and not just an employee of a, of a charity, or does being an employee of a charity come first? Um, your feet are in both worlds, because you're right. You've, you've got to be that advocate for the donor saying, let me help you find something, a match with this organization. And with the organization is saying, let me find you donors who, who have a match. When uh, We're going to take a, a real quick uh, break here. Uh, when we come back in your book, you specifically mention – uh, the need to start with people's needs and articulate how your organization benefits the community rather than just focusing on institutional needs. And this goes back to one of my contentions that needing money isn't enough uh, to be a good fundraiser. So when we come back uh, with Tom Wilson, the author of the AFP Wiley series book, Winning Gifts, uh, we're going to learn more about how you can be successful as a major donor fundraiser. We'll be right back. I'm thrilled to recognize as the sponsor of today's show, BlackBot. Uh, BlackBot has been a leader uh, in uh, providing fundraising and CRM software for nonprofit organizations around the world. Uh, their name certainly comes up here in Spain and other countries. I'll be lecturing on Thursday in London, and I know that they're a strong player there as well. You'll find over in the radio links a highlighted link uh, to their program, uh, and you will find that with BlackBot, you can raise money both online and offline with the help of built-in fundraising best practices. Very impressively, you can also focus on your best donors with BlackBot's newest innovation, the Giving Score. Connect with your supporters with integrated e-marketing and social media tools. BlackBot is a partner for nonprofit organizations and a partner here with the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Coming up on October 4th, uh, they will also be hosting us uh, live at BBCon in Washington, D.C. That will be the first ever 90-minute uh, call-in show here on the Nonprofit Coach, and that is sponsored by BlackBot. Thank you for sponsoring the Nonprofit Coach. We're going to head right back to page two. We 
Show live here on the Nonprofit Coach, coming to you live from Madrid, Spain. Uh, our guest here on the Nonprofit Coach is Tom Wilson, the author of Winning Gifts, Making Your Donors Feel Like Winners. And Tom, I wanted to ask you to reflect on this, uh, starting off with people's needs. How does a fundraiser do that? Because isn't it true that most fundraisers start off with a budget that their organization gave them to fill? <laughs> oh, indeed. And we still have to watch the bottom line. Uh, well, let me use the example of where I'm at here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm working with Teton Science Schools, and they have five different programs they're raising money for, and we're both doing a $2 million annual fund and also a $20 million comprehensive campaign with an emphasis on endowment. And I met with a donor and longtime board member yesterday, and I was taking Anne through the different projects within the campaign and I always start there of telling everybody, at least show your array to this prospective donor. And then I ask Dan, now where do you get excited? And we've got an independent school here. And she says, I don't have any kids. I'm a board member. I believe in the whole project, but I get really excited about the school. So that was my cue then. Now let's move deeper at our next meeting with Anne on projects fundraising around the school because that's where her passion is. Now, so, now, I, so you found her passion, but how did you know to say there should be another meeting? I'm not going to try to close everything in one meeting. Uh, okay, great question. If it's straight annual fund gift, if it was just the goal with Ann yesterday was let's get $1,000 in the annual fund, renew her gift, whatever she's been giving, I could have closed the deal yesterday but we're in campaign mode where we know it's going to take four to six meetings to get a great gift. Now, how do you so know I, that? How, how, how do my listeners learn from your expertise to start honing those kind of skills? What are you looking for, and how did you know that this was not the meeting? Well, I generally have a rule with all my clients, both with staff and particularly the volunteers, of saying the first meeting, forget about making an ask. You need to find out their interests and needs and how they connect, and you need to build a relationship with that person. Now, if they're ready to offer a gift that you've targeted, certainly accept it, but that's not your goal at the meeting. And this was true at then. I've seen her at committee meetings, but this is my first one. So I wanted to build a relationship, find out her interests, and then set up an opening for a next meeting. Now, in your book, uh, Winning Gifts, Making Your Donor Feel Like Winner, you really emphasize using a marketing approach to fundraising. What does that mean, and how can our listeners learn from you? Ah, uh, Okay, good. Well, you've seen many moves management, and I use a six-eyes approach. And the one I add to it is interest and needs. It's a step in the fundraising now, let, process. Let's take, a step, let's take a step back for folks who may may not know what are the six eyes. Okay, well, you've seen a lot of booth management, and the, the first move is uh, IQ, identify and qualify. Does the person have money? And you've got to, this is the undemocratic part of fundraising. You've got to find out where is the money so when we get all done, they've got some money to give me. Two is really informing them and interacting with the organization. Before you go for an ask, have they ever been on your campus? What do they know about you? So you've got to slow down a little bit. So, so someone, someone having money. Just having money is not enough. No, that's a starting place. You've got to make sure they're qualified for money, and they can be technically qualified, but you don't know all the calls on their money. And so, part of the discussion with them 
is finding out, well, what are other calls you have? I have one guy I talked to a couple of weeks ago, and he said, well, yes, I have a lot, a lot of money, but now I'm paying tuition for six grandkids to go to private college. So all of a sudden, I don't have the cash and, flow. And you that wouldn't I need have to. any way of knowing that except Talking by having it. a meeting and having a discussion and having a dialogue. Right. So prospect research, you talked about Blackbaud. They do fantastic work. They're one of our partners. Certainly start with that to help qualify your donors, but then you need that personal meeting to find out where are they on their path for philanthropy. Are they used to giving money away? What other pledges do they have out there? And what's their interest in you? And a lot of times, until you meet with somebody, they're not interested in you much. Because I asked one guy who was doing an interview, we the statement, and I said, well, where are we on your philanthropic interests? And he said, well, until you showed up for this meeting, you weren't on my radar screen at all. So just showing up to interact with donors helps get the ball moving. I, I'm, I'm so sort of uh, curious about um, this concept that Daryl put forward, and then you immediately agreed with him. And I think, uh, sadly, intuitively, we know that this is true uh, for a lot of fundraisers. They wouldn't necessarily know um, how, how to make that ask or how to have that conversation uh, because they're trying to use technology as a way to actually separate themselves. And right. you fundraising, can you? Yeah, and with major gift fundraisers, I tell them you should be out of the office 80% of your time. Um, I, asked, I asked my staff, I was university vice president for five years, you need to make tw at least 20 face-to-face -face visits with donors every month, and I'm going to track that. I want to report. I want to see the contact reports. You will be measured, sure, on your fundraising, and how many dollars you bring in, but more importantly, how many contacts with qualified donors have you made. Right. Because it does take multiple visits. It's not just a matter of I, I, I had a, a woman once uh, who said that she, she wanted to get into fundraising because she understood that you go to lunch and they give you a check. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. <laughs> so fill in the blanks and help me understand this marketing approach that you speak of in your book. Well, again, the, the typical approach is Joe's got money. Let's go ask him for it. Well, why is that fun for Joe? So if you stop and turn around and say, now, what, am I, what are Joe's interests? How do we connect with him? And marketing is the listening. You know, here's our array of projects. Now, what are you interested in? And then once I find out their interest, I can now build that interest and deepen it so I can lead to a, a Right. So at that point, where are we at in the six eyes? I'm not sure that we, we completed all the six eyes. So so say that you're working with, with Bill. You found out that he's got money. Uh, you find out that uh, he's qualified. What, where do you go from there? Well, then step two is interact with them. So in some ways, bring them to cultivation events. This is the advantage of having some social events, home dinners. So they're just interacting with you socially so they can hear from their peers great things. That's, and, and, that's because, and that's because people are social. I mean, we, we talk about social media, and that, it sounds like it's all about technology, but it's really about being social. But you have to have that social interaction for, for people to build trust. Isn't that right? That's correct. And many times, especially the top donors, they're getting bombarded by emails, and direct mail and brochures, and they tend not to read anything. And so, and how, so do you how do you stand out? Is that is that where this marketing approach helps you stand out? And what's the next eye? Okay, so that's step two. Step three is this interest and needs. Do you really know what this donor is interested in? 
and a lot of times that's a sit-down meeting like I did with Ann yesterday of just tell me about you and yourself, and it's requalifying them as donors. How did they make the money? What are their values? And then what's your interest in our organization? Why did you show up? Why did you join our board? Now, this this starts presenting a little bit of a of a problem uh, for someone who is working for an administration, for instance, that doesn't understand fundraising, because if you're out meeting with people, you're building relationships, and you're moving towards making uh, an ask, you're not necessarily raising money. Well, and that's redefining fundraising. You, in fact, are raising money. And again, if you're just doing an annual fund meeting, you could close the gift at step three as well. Okay. And a lot of times we'll do that in the campaign of saying, well, I'm not here to ask you for your our, your campaign gift today. We're going to talk about that later. But you have been giving to us annually. 13 months ago you gave us $5,000. Could you renew that gift today? And it's a bit of a detail. So is is part of this as a professional uh, helping set reasonable and realistic expectations for the organization that you're working with? That's correct. How do you, you have do a that? Strong well, have a strong annual fund program. Are you renewing donors by mail, email? Have you upgraded donors? So the other opportunity in the annual fund, I always like looking at campaign mode. Yes, we want to go to George for $100,000 in six months, but he's only giving us $1,000 in the annual fund. We've got a budget to meet this year. Can we get him to 5000 for the annual fund this month and then 100000 in six months? So, so what's the next I, and, and, and where does this fit? I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that uh, for the average listener here, this is all sounding like, yeah, but can I really do this? And again, you can only do it with qualified donors where there's a big upside. And again, you're only doing one of these a day. It's not all of your time, but if 80%, 80-90% of your annual fund or your campaign is coming from these major donors, you're going to get some good results coming back. So so if, if you're doing this, as you said, maybe once a day, uh, what is the average, uh, what is a realistic portfolio for a gift officer? Because while, while there's 365 days in the year, there's certainly not, not many that many work days, and you're not asking, you know, say 250 individuals once, you're meeting with them several times. So what's realistic over the course of the year, and how does that really help a charity? Okay, good question. Um, well, I believe a major gift officer with no travel and no administrative duties can handle 125 prospects at any one time. Okay. So that's and, that's part of setting expectations for an administration, that if you want to seriously raise money, you have to be staffing to that based on the number of prospects, qualified prospects that you have. Right. And then the other biggest problem we're seeing today is everybody's saying, well, it's so efficient for each person to be their own secretary. So we're seeing major gift officers who aren't meeting with donors because they're running to the grocery store to buy the vegetable platter for the special event. So right. we also free up your people, get them out of extraneous meetings in the organization, get them administrative help. So their focus, their job is to meet with donors. So what's the next I? Where do, where do we go from there? So again, number one was IQ, number two was interact, three was interest and needs, step four is inform and deepen understanding. And this is your traditional materials, your annual report, your annual fund brochure, your campaign video. You've got to have those tools for people to understand what you're doing in some depth. So again, so this, is, this is also part about setting those expectations because uh, these are not miracle workers. They're, there's collateral and there's 
uh, an overall process that has to be in place before a fundraiser can hope to succeed. Right, and that's where the marketing department can help. You can get the whole team together to inform people to soften the ground between meetings. Now, what about so uh, what about for those folks who are listening today who are saying, I am the marketing department? <laughs> well, then have your simple materials and a great tool to go and interact with, with people because people are saying, well, how do I get that meeting where I sit down and learn about them for step three? Well, take your annual fund brochure as a draft, take it back to your top 25 donors and say, hey, what do you think? Does this work? So getting feedback. So uh, we're going to take uh, just a little bit of a break here. When we come back, we're going to get that fifth eye Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. This is a live call-in show, and we're here uh, with Tom Wilson, the author of Winning Gifts. I do think that part of the problem that Tom had is a problem that others may be having, uh, is that because I'm here in Madrid, I may be having a little bit of trouble with my switchboard. So make sure that you ask questions over in the chat room or email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. So uh, back here, um, what is the fifth eye? All right, the, the fifth eye, and it's sort of the besides the interest and needs is also the magic bullet is involvement. If you involve people in your organizations, you're going to get a better gift and a bigger gift. Okay. So does that mean that everybody you want to raise money for um, has to somehow be on the board? Or what do you mean? No, but but you might start there. And the number of boards they go to where they're saying, well, we want to raise a million dollars a year. And I say, okay, so what's the wealth on your board? Well, we can give 10000 together. Well, the best way to get some great gifts is get some wealthy people on your board, and over time they will learn about your organization in great depth. Now, not everybody has to be on your board. They can be on your annual fund committee, your capital campaign committee, and we even have some donors saying, I'd rather be on the capital campaign fundraising committee than on your board. So that's so involvement is is involvement of their time as well. So how does that bring us to the sixth eye? And then six is ask for the investment. Okay. That's asking for the gift. But I always use the word investment because they're investing in your organization, investing in your impact on society. And, and, and back to your marketing approach, why is that materially different than give me money? Well, that's more about what we need. And too many groups, you've got to turn your case statement on its head. Nobody cares what you need. It's what difference are you making in the world. Right. Yeah. When I gave the plenary here uh, at the Congress here in Madrid today, I started off with needing money is not good enough. No. Everybody needs something. That's not the point. Yeah. I followed that up by saying I have no fear that you will raise too much money. Your organization will find a way to spend every dime that you raise. So it must be about something else why we're engaged in these efforts than just filling a budget. We do have an email question coming in, uh, Tom, and this comes to us uh, from uh, Robert in Houston, and he's asking about the people-centered fundraising organization. What is that? Ah, Okay, well, it's back to this marketing approach, which is saying that the center of all of your work are the people, your donors. And you've heard the word donor-centered fundraising, um, and, and that's what I'm talking about. But in the West, we have a lot of new organizations where we want to approach people for money, and they're not even donors yet. They're just people. 
So how do you get people to adopt your organization? Uh, particularly if you have a new university, you don't have a lot of alumni. How do you get people in the community to adopt you and further your aims and your impact on society? How, how indeed? How do you do that? I'm starting off with a blank piece of paper. How do you do that? Well, part of it is, you know, I, uh, I come from Oregon, and one of University of Oregon's biggest donors, he's given over $100 million, was never an alum. But he cared about the university's impact on the state. And so he got inspired. Somebody connected with them. And this is where your volunteers are so important. I tell them, don't worry about asking for money. I can do that. I need you to connect me to wealth. Right, because it matters who is involved in the ask, and it needs to be someone who has the kind of relationship that it's nearly very difficult to say no. Right, and that's the ideal where I had one ask where we had Bill who'd given $1.8 million, was asking his buddy Frank for a matching gift of $1.8 million. That's the magic ask because I've done it. You've got more money than me. Match my gift. Match match my gift, and so that person can't uh, almost can't say no. Robert, thank you very much for your question. So, if it's not a donor-centered fundraising organization, what's sort of the alternative that, to that? Which I'm fearful a lot of charities are that alternative. What what is that alternative? Well, that's back to what we need, which is an institutional focused fundraising program. Right. It's all about what, us, about what we need and our programs versus donors. What do you need us to do for you and the community that you value enough to give us huge gifts for? But don't a lot of executive directors slash CEO slash president slash board chairman approach it that way? Isn't that uh, why they hire a fundraiser is get money for our needs? Well, and we will do that, but we've got to translate that back to what are your needs that impact the community? Right. And a good example is you want to hire this new professor for your faculty. Well, that's what you need. How do we transfer this faculty members working on sustainability? They're going to really impact our community and all the schools through the work they do together through sustainability. Then you can get donors think, oh, I'm interested in this topic. Yeah, that's great. Um, Tom, I just want to uh, let my listeners know that uh, I will be uh, speaking at the Action Planning Conference this Thursday at the Blakemore Hotel, Hyde Park, London. Uh, so you can uh, check that out. And if you're in London, please uh, stop by and join me for that lecture. We're here live wrapping up the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. We're here live with Tom Wilson, the author of Winning Gifts. Uh, Tom, wrap it all up for us here in terms of the focus of winning gifts. You've provided a lot of very concrete advice today, which I very much appreciate, and let our listeners know how they can reach you. Okay. Well, I'm at uh, Tom Period Wilson at CampbellCompany.com. I've got a blog, MajorGiftsGuru.com. And again, get out there, meet with donors. Meet one donor face-to-face -face every day, on average, 20 a month, 240 a year. Get out of your office and carry with you stories and the impact of your organization on society. You need to get as excited about your case and your stories and your organization as you want the donors to be. One of the things that I, I, I advise, and I'd like you to just reflect on this, is that Every uh, director of development or top uh, uh, fundraising person in an organization, along with the ex uh, executive director or the top executive person, should have that top 100 or top 200 list of prospects that they know, they regularly look at, that they're working on those relationships. And without doing that, you can't possibly hope to move forward on a major gift campaign. 
That's correct. And a lot of times I break that down further. I'll go to a university president and say, who's your top ten list? And do that for each person on staff. And then who's the next 25 that you're cultivating? And then who's the future 65? So that's a way to make it a little bit more reasonable and put it within reach uh, for each of the people that you're supporting uh, in that fundraising process. Right. Keep it easier. Keep it digestible. So who's the top ten and have I touched them in the last week? Tom, it's been great having you here on the show. Sorry for a little bit of the technical difficulties. I want to thank Daryl Upsall for also sharing his expertise. Great to be here with all the fundraisers here in Madrid, Spain. We will be right back here on The Nonprofit Coach next week. Uh, so make sure that you join us at 12 noon Eastern uh, here for The Nonprofit Coach. You can always find us at tedhart.com. That's our show for today. Tom, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.